Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. And, oh, I mean, this I'm almost tearing up thinking about it. I actually am. <laughs> um, I love you, Gloria. Um, Gloria Neeland is, is joining us. And um, her story is amazing. And I have such deep regard for this woman, probably one of the most effective, grounded, purpose-driven leaders I've ever had the chance of working with and for. So you are in for a treat, people. So Gloria, here's the scenario. You, your husband, Dave, and your son, David, are eating at your favorite place in Manhattan Beach, California, where you reside. And you are getting seated at your favorite table. And as you're walking by, somebody goes, oh, hey, that's Gloria Neeland. And they start talking about you, but they don't realize that you've got amazing hearing and you overhear what they're saying. What would you like to have them say about you? Um, I would like them to say that um, I am a really uh, caring, loving person that um, has a lot of energy and a lot of um, love to give to lots of different people in lots of different areas. Um, I would hope they would say that I'm also smart. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, that um, I make a difference. Um, and, and honestly, I would say, and I do hope people really do see this, like that I truly live to honor God in all that I do. And I would hope somebody would see that and say it. Mm. Well, I think the reason I was tearing up and um, I did not expect that, but that is all of those things are true in my experience. And I got to work with you starting the middle of 2009 and I think I kind of rolled off in supporting you with some of the last uh, investments that we had together um, in 2017 if I'm not mistaken. Yes so, I believe that's correct. And we've been friends ever since and it was just uh, two years ago that we were in Manhattan Beach visiting my son in Hermosa Beach and we got to spend uh, a weekend at the park enjoying we had <laughs> an <so> amazing much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a ton of fun gotten to got to hear an outdoor concert that was just a blast so anyway um when people like that like gloria neeland pass and come into your life um and make that much of a difference uh, you don't let them go so anyway so Ben, I know you want to get into some of the story because this, you know, Gloria is extremely accomplished. She's extremely caring. You'll see that in her story. She's a difference maker. She's a ripple maker is what she is. Um, and her story is just fascinating. So Ben, take it away. Yeah. So Gloria is currently the, the chairman and CEO of TriLink Global. She was the head of private wealth management for North America at Deutsche Bank. She was the head of global asset management, uh, sales and marketing for Bank of America. And 
when Gary and I were talking prior to this, Gloria, I, I said, I think I interrupted him mid-sentence. I was like, she may be a multi-episode person because there's just so much to unpack in your story. Um, I, I want to go back a little bit. So even prior, I, and Gary's mentioned it a couple of times and we were talking about it prior to recording, was going from a, a teaching background into a banking background and a finance uh, background what was the draw or the appeal to, to make a change and go into that world? Yeah, so that's actually a great question. So the, the real story is I, so I grew up in Ohio and I went to, didn't go far away for college. I went to University of Dayton. And when I was growing up, um, if you were a woman and you wanted to have a career that was college driven, um, you really had two choices. You could be a nurse or a school teacher. And I really thought, ooh, I don't like blood and stuff like that. So I think I better be a school teacher. And I thought, well, I like kids. So um, I went to University of Dayton to be an elementary school teacher. And I, in my, my last year, I was doing a, a student teaching job. And on my first day, I came home and I, I was in tears. And I said to my mom, look, I don't think this is going to work. And my mom, being a good mom, said, oh, honey, it's your first day. I mean, like, you know, what happened? And I was like, look, I, I just don't think I want to do this. And, you know, she said, well, you've spent your whole, you know, college time just doing this. So give it the semester. And if at the end you still feel this way, then, you know, we can talk about it. And on my last day of student teaching, I came home much more determined. And I said, mom, I am not going to do this because this is not going to work. <laughs> it would not be good for those kids. It would not be good for me. Um, and so then she was like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I, I really have no idea. So I'm going to reach out to people and that I know. And because this is all I ever thought I would do. And so fortunately for me, my best friend's mom was the HR director at a bank in Dayton that was a full bank back then. So it was a bank and trust department had investments and it did, um, you know, like bond underwritings and um, stock underwritings. And so she said to me, well, have you ever considered a career in finance? And I was like, I don't even know what that is, but it sounds like it could be fun. <laughs> and sounds so, better than teaching. Right? Sounds better than teaching. <laughs> And so um, my very first job at Third National Bank of Dayton, Ohio, not first, third, um, <laughs> was uh, typing stock certificates and balancing shareholder records manually. So this is before DTC. Um, you literally would, you know, somebody wanted to sell their stock, they'd mail it to us, their physical certificate. And then I would stamp it with my stamp canceled and put a new one in my typewriter and issue it to the new people. And then on my little handheld cards, um, I would write out and keep those records. Um, and the amazing thing about that, and then my, I just kept getting promoted and I just, I found that I absolutely loved everything about finance. Um, hmm. But I realized I was so blessed to have that kind of a start because I knew from the beginning how all of finance works. I did, you know, stock issuances. I did bond issuances. I had to do common trust fund accountings. Um, and I had to do pretty much everything that's behind the scenes that now happens electronically. Um, and I got to do it all manually. And so 
I got to really see how it worked. And I, I honestly do believe like it made um, the whole finance world so much more fun for me. Mm -hmm. And then I just, that was it. I just loved finance from then on. (laughs) That's so interesting, especially basically being poised with the choice of nursing or teaching and to go from that to then being the highest ranked female executive at Deutsche Bank. I mean, that's quite the journey, right? That's quite the leap. Yes. Yes. Um, So I want to, I want to dive deeper onto that dynamic of it. Um, what what were some of the things that you had to deal with along the way of getting to such a high position, especially as a female, especially as that time, like you said, where you were almost being steered into one or two paths? What were some of those things that you dealt with along the way on that journey? Yeah, um, it's really interesting because I have, looking back, I have now concluded that being completely clueless about all of that stuff that happens has served me well. Um, I stayed really focused on what my job was and what I needed to do for myself and for my team. And so all of the things that a lot of women deal with, I simply didn't notice. So it, it, it could even be that I had those things happen to me and I just didn't know. Um, but I just stayed so focused on me and my team and what we were doing and what I needed to do, um, that it, it, I just didn't notice, um, the two stories that I can tell you, um, because I know that's a boring answer, but, (laughs) uh, early in my career, uh, I was in my twenties and I just, I'd been at, I had got recruited to California and I'd been at security Pacific a couple of years. I was the only woman on the management team. And all of them were men and they were all much older. Now, they were probably the age I am now, but they seemed really old. (laughs) And um, what would happen is every time the discussion would get intense, um, one of them would say, okay, let's take a break. Then they would all get up, go to the men's room and finish whatever the conversation (laughs) was. And... No. Yeah, most of the time, I like I didn't care. They'd come back and they'd go, well, here's what we decided. And it was fine. But one day um, I was involved in one of those intense discussions with our head of legal and it got really intense. And one of the guys said, hey, why don't why don't we just calm down? Let's take a break. And I just thought, oh, man, they are not doing that to me again. And so I just <laughs> followed them right into the men's room and I just kept talking and <laughs> The funny thing was when I got in there, I, you know, it's like that split second where you go, what have I just done? Um, And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? So I went into the stall and I sat down and just kept talking. Like I just talking, talking, talking. And I could tell they were all nervous as heck and didn't know what to do. And occasionally one of them would answer me. And then I was thinking, what am I going to do? I need to make sure they're gone. Right. I don't want to walk out. And so I'm Walk, looking under the stall and everything to make sure they're all gone. And the good news was after that, they never did that again. <laughs> but the, when I looked at that story, right, I didn't really think they did it because I was a woman. I think they just did it because that's how they calmed the room, right? Is, yeah. okay, let's take a break. And it just happened to be that I was a woman, so I couldn't go in there. Right. Um, 
I didn't feel until like you like, did. <laughs> well, I did eventually, but, um, but I didn't think that was being, you know, like pointed out because I was. I didn't think they were doing it because I was a woman. Mm-hmm. So it didn't ever hit me that way. Yeah. Um, and then the only other story, which was, oh gosh, it was um, many, many years later. I was at Deutsche Bank, and um, every like every quarter we would do a this thing called Lead Three Hundred. It would be, we'd meet somewhere in the world, all of the top 300 managers in the world at Deutsche Bank. And we would go through the results for the quarter and, you know, some division would be presenting and we would, you know, spend time working on strategy and all of that. And I had probably been to five or six of these quarterly meetings already when at this one particular meeting, um, we're listening to the guy that's presenting for his team uh, or for his division. And he had brought in a woman strategist that is on his team to help him with the presentation. And the whole time they're on stage, I can see her staring at me. And it was so much so that it was uncomfortable. You know, like if Mm. you're in an audience and you can tell someone's just like, be like, just they're staring at you. And so I would try to look away and I would look back and she would still be staring at me. And so it was just weird. And then that ends and we're breaking for lunch and I can see her out of the corner of my eye, like making a beeline for me. And, uh, you know, again, I just felt so uncomfortable. And she came over to me and she grabbed my arm and she goes, I am sorry, but I just have to ask you, what is it like to always be the only woman in these meetings? Mm. And I looked around and I was like, I never noticed that. (laughs) <laughs> and I honestly had never noticed that I was the only woman. <laughs> and so that's why I said it probably was just me being totally clueless and <laughs> that I just didn't notice things that happened. <laughs> yep. You just went in and knew what you had to do and exactly. did it every day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, I gave a talk at Laity Lodge um, after I had retired and um, I was telling a little bit about that story. And afterwards, all of these men, I mean, much older men came up to me and said, you know, I am so glad you said that. Like, if more women would have that attitude, it would be so much easier. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I do. <Yeah. laughs> So Gloria, you were in your 40s, weren't you, when you retired? Yes, I was 42 when I retired. I mean, come on, man. You've got more energy than anybody I know. (laughs) Yes, yes. But I, the reason I retired was because I really felt like I wanted my life to have meaning and I wanted to make a difference. And um, I grew up in, in, you know, with a strong faith and I, always in the back of my mind felt like, oh, well, I'm not, or people aren't serving God unless you are either a pastor or a missionary. And it it was always in my mind. And so I just couldn't shake it. And so when I retired, I thought, okay, now, now I'm going to serve God. Um, And now my life will have meaning. And so I will go find my purpose in life. And Now, uh, looking back, I called it my two-year wilderness journey because (laughs) for two years, I felt like I was wandering in the wilderness um, and searching for my purpose. 
And at the same time, I was, you know, I was traveling around the world, getting involved in causes I cared about, again, in search of, so what really is my purpose? And one of the things I realized was, wow, that doing philanthropy and all of that is not me. That definitely can't be my calling because (laughs) I am just not made to be that person. Um, And then um, at about, in about a two week period, that is what ended up being the end of my wilderness journey, but I didn't know it at the time. But during this two week period, I had all of these people reach out to me from different phases and times in my life and reach out to me in different ways. And every single one of them, it was them telling me about what a difference I made in their life. Wow. And I, at the same time that happened, I was reading a book called Business as Mission. And all of a sudden, I really felt like the Lord said to me, so Gloria, business was your calling. You were doing exactly what I wanted you to do. Look at all of these people you touched and helped along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once that happened, I really felt like I was free to say, okay, then <laughs> if business can be my calling, then I want to do business again. <laughs> This time, though, I would love to do it in a way that um, also gives back. And um, in 2007, then, I was invited to join this think tank discussion group in London. And the topic was, how do we use capitalism to solve social problems? Mm. And for me, it was that was it. It was like, well, wait a minute. That is what we should be doing. And then I realized I could use all of my background, all of my experience, all my contacts, and the love I have of business and investing and finance. Um, I could, but I could do it in a way that could help the world and make the world better. Um, and that's when I started trialing. Man. <clears throat> you, as you're doing this and making that, we'll call it the, your two-year wilderness, wilderness journey. journey. <laughs> um, <laughs> what were some of the things that you discovered about yourself as that journey? Because especially at 42, which is significantly earlier than, than most well, people are going to retire, right? Um, or at least retire for the first time. Uh, yeah. So that's got to be pretty extremely transformative. So you just hit on how it was from the career standpoint and getting you on the track from that point. But what were some of those things that you discovered about yourself during that two-year uh, wilderness journey? Yeah, well, it's a great question. One of the things was um, that I realized I am a person who is designed to accomplish things, to achieve things. I wake up every day and I've got to have something to accomplish. (laughs) And so when I first, you know, was retired, there's a list of projects that you have in your house that, you know, you've had for years and they pile up. And um, in the first two months, they were done. Like, and my, after I um, organized and labeled the entire medicine cabinet, my husband said, Gloria, you have got to find something to do. <laughs> like, this is making me crazy. Um, and I, so I realized, oh, wow, that, I, that is the kind of person I am. I'm not, I'm not a person who's designed to, um, you know, just sit back and relax all day. That is just, isn't me. Mm-hmm. I'm not wired that way. Um, so I need to accomplish things. Um, and then the other thing that I would say took me longer, but 
everybody always talked about balance, right? And I never felt like I had, you know, work-life balance as people described it. And I was, you know, willing to admit that. I was like, look, if I didn't have this amazing husband, um, really taking the majority of the work with our son, um, I couldn't have a family because I'm just too consumed with work. And it was, it was hard. It would be hard to not do that. And so I was working on, you know, so how do people find that balance? And what I realized is, well, for me, balance was more about being present in the times where I was there. So it didn't mean I had to be there more. It just meant that when I was there, I needed to be more present because I wasn't always present. Um, And now I I really do feel like it makes a huge difference. Um, And it's, I don't know, I I even do enjoy life more because I'm more present. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Oh, go for it. Sorry, Gary. Yeah. So here's the funny thing. So I was in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, when I met Gloria. And we find out that we've got, I'm not from Ohio originally, and she had left it, but I'm stuck in Ohio at that moment. And um, most people are going her way, Gary, not yours. Exactly. Exactly. I was, I was still looking for my ride back down to Charlotte. And, um, but what was, what was really funny and, and amazing is as we got to know each other, like she, you know, I'm on East coast time. She's on West coast time. And I don't think that the lady sleeps like Gloria, you get you get up at what, 430 or something crazy like that. 345. Oh, <laughs> I'm hoping I'm still breathing at 345 a.m. But so, you know, I'd be up at, you know, I'd get up at my normal time, you know, seven o'clock or whatever, 630 on an early day. And she's already up. You know, I mean, it's crazy. Uh, so. Uh, she still brings more energy than most people. And, um, you know, I think it'd be interesting to, in talking a little bit about, you know, when we met, and I don't want to get into all the gory details, because that one's a, a, a novel in and of itself, but we learned a lot. We learned a lot. We, we went through intense fire together. Yeah. Um, she, what was it, you know, I, here's the thing that I've learned. You learn a lot about somebody when things are really good or really bad. And Gloria came into a situation where our company was blowing up. People were losing a ton of money in our holding company. She was at the time, a business partner with our founder who I had called and said, you, this is an SOS. You've got to come and, and get involved in this. And it was a, colossal you know atomic meltdown it was terrible but what was and this is one of the reasons i probably tear up because she didn't have a dog in this hunt and yet she jumped into the ring of fire stayed in the ring of fire even when the founder of this company abandoned it and and that's why i think my heart is forever welded um to gloria but she's a leader among leaders. And I don't say that lightly. I've had some good leaders in my life, but you learn a lot when, you know, the things get tough and, and this is one tough lady. Um, 
and just a great leader with a humongous heart. Um, one of the things that I'd like to go into, Gloria, is, you know, you had this vision for, at the time, you know, the Social Impact Fund, and it was at the time called, you know, Triple Bottom Line, right? Um, and now it's called an ESG fund, right? I think that's become kind of the, the acronym. But talk to us about like what started that. And then the big, you had a big, hairy, audacious goal that there were plenty of naysayers out there and we had plenty of headwind to actually launch that. I want to go into that part of the story. Okay. Um, so for the, you know, why, what, what caused me to look at impact investing, ESG, all that um, really was that um, meeting that I was part of that group that I was part of in London on how do we use capitalism to solve social problems. But behind that um, in my life, I really felt like there were a lot of things that looking back, I could say led me to that place um, and, and made it easier for me to even get that, that vision. So when I was growing up, my dad was an entrepreneur and he had like 27 different businesses um, as I was growing up. And um, one of the things that I noticed, like always, but again, it didn't, it didn't really coalesce around from an investment perspective until much later in my life. But what I noticed was um, my dad treated all of his stakeholders really well. Like he always shared equity. He always treated his employees like family even all of his suppliers, like we would have parties for them. Um, and he would always, whenever he had a, um, any kind of a liquidity event, he would do something for the community. He built a school, mm. he built a swimming pool, he built a park. And, and then lo and behold, every time he started a new company, everybody wanted to patronize the company. And <laughs> it, it was a model that I just thought, well, that's, that makes sense, right? That to me was common sense. Like, well, then everybody should do that, right? Yeah. You, um, if you are a good business leader, then you should be managing all of your stakeholders and you should be ethical and you should give back. And when I, you know, when I really got into investing and analyzing companies and stuff, and I realized, wow, nobody's looking at that which seems weird. Like, are they a good company or not? Um, mm -hmm. it, it always surprised me. Um, but I, at the time didn't feel like, Oh, there's anything I could do about it until, uh, I don't even remember when this was, but at Scudder, they had a socially responsible investing fund and they were just building out the capability and wanted to do a mutual fund. And I was like, wow, absolutely. We should be doing that. Um, because good co companies that are good companies are going to outperform those that aren't. Um, and it, again, it was all common sense. So I helped them uh, get that going. And then when I was at Deutsche Bank, I sat on the bank's community reinvestment board and we did a lot with microfinance. Again, a, a model that I felt like really made sense, right? And so um, that was my sort of historical exposure to it so that when this idea of using capitalism to solve social problems came up. Um, again, it just made sense to me. And I thought, well, I know all about investing and, you know, investors and 
I can um, help. I, I, I can't fix it all, but I can certainly help um, by creating a fund or creating a company that manages funds that can prove that you can have both. Um, because one of the things that I learned when I was just researching in 2007, 2008, social impact funds, triple bottom line funds, um, one of the things I realized was every single one of them were really a, a philanthropic donation disguised as an investment. Yeah. And they didn't disguise it very well. And so when I would sit with them and look at their deck and I would say, they would say, well, how come we can't raise money? And I would say, well, because it's not a real investment. And one of the things you have to understand is investors have two buckets. They have their investment bucket and they have their philanthropy bucket. And if they are, if it's in their investment bucket, it's got to generate market rate returns for whatever piece of the allocation it is. And what I want to do is activate that whole investment bucket by managing better how we do those investments and holding companies accountable, not only for performance, but yes, for performance, but also for doing things better. And none of them wanted to hear that. Um, everybody was like, well, no, people will be moved by what good we're doing. And I'm like, they will. And then it's coming out of their philanthropy bucket, which is a right. very tiny bucket compared to what is in the investment bucket. And after a year of like hitting my head against the wall, I thought, all right, I'm just going to go do it. And I'm just going to prove that it can be done. Um, and that was like, that was the impetus behind starting Trilink. But I also, the reason for the big, hairy, audacious goal was I thought, well, if I'm going to do this and not be retired, um, I need to do it in a big way. I don't want to be one of those funds that I met with that had $50 million fund or a $75 million fund. Like I needed to be billions of dollars. And so as starting a company, an investment firm, um, again, I spent my whole career doing this. So I know that institutional investors are the last in to any new idea. So you don't start there because you're not going to raise any money. Um, high net worth individuals, they will put money in, but you're probably, you can't scale it. So you're probably going to end up with a 50 or $75 million fund. Retail, on the other hand, <laughs> mass affluent, absolutely can be influenced and you can raise a lot of money in that channel. Um, the, the big hurdle there is that you have to be registered with the SEC, with FINRA and all the states. And so there are huge, huge obstacles to doing a retail fund. Um, but I decided, look, if we're gonna get to a couple billion dollars, then we've gotta go retail first. So we took the few years that it took um, to get all of the strategy together, to do all the research um, and then launch our retail fund. So we launched our first fund in 2013 and raised $350 million in that fund. Um, and that allowed us then to launch an institutional fund. We've now launched two institutional funds and another private fund for um, high net worth investors. And I, you know, looking back, I go, oh, there, I made mistakes, absolutely made mistakes. Um, but it was still the right strategy, you know, doing retail first and institutional. Um, it was the right way to build a scalable business.
So um, when we, when I got to be part of that in 09 and then the, you know, you wanted to be a certified B Corp. And for yes. anybody listening to this, um, look it up, but that's not a short putt. So if you haven't figured it out by now, Gloria Neeland uh, doesn't shoot for singles. She shoots for grand slams and she shoots for the stars always. <laughs> and um, so we did that. We and if you guys remember, we've had uh, another B Corp uh, on the Anything But Typical podcast, Michelle Tuna Buelo, uh, Bulo, and um, with Bella Tuna. And it's interesting because there are only two certified B Corps in Charlotte. Both of them are run by women. And Gloria Nealon got this thing certified in 2010. And we were, I think we were at SOCAP in 2010, if I remember yes, right. Wasn't right. that then? So in San Francisco and everybody else were humongous organizations, Clinton Global Initiative, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, et cetera. And then here we are, <laughs> Trilink Global, and we want to have, you know, eventually billions under management. And, but Gloria did a breakout session and it was really Interesting. I mean, I, even though I think she was the giant among giants from a leadership and true character and like true servant uh, leader, um, we were we were the like, who are those guys, you know, right. in, in the room there uh, for sure. But talk to us about, you know, you were very intentional, even on your team early on, getting us all aligned and that sort of thing, and focused on this seemingly amazingly impossible goal. It wasn't that we believed it was impossible. We just knew it was freaking big. Oh, and by the way, this is in the middle of the Great Recession. Right. Right. I mean, we hadn't come out yet. Right. <laughs> we were still dealing with it. So talk about you know, the days and nights where it became like, what are we doing? Because you risked everything. You put your own capital on the line. You risked everything. And Dave was in the, the boat with you. Yeah. You know, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um, from the beginning, I was so clear that this is what God wanted me to do. Um, and that he would guide me every step of the way. Um, it helped me have just, um, complete resolve to do what I needed to do. And if there were obstacles or challenges, I had faith that, Hey, I don't know how it's going to work, but, but I know it is going to work. And, um, it, you know, I, I, one of the other lessons I learned, you know, Ben, you had asked about one of the lessons, what are lessons that you learned? One of the things that I learned was I had always prided myself um, on being a person of faith. And, you know, I would every morning start my days with uh, my hour devotions and I still do that, but I, I always felt like, oh, that's, um, that's it. That's enough. Not even enough. I mean, but that, keeps me going and that keeps me on the straight and narrow. And one of the things that I learned about myself though, was like, 
well, while that is true, it does, it helps you ground, be grounded and everything. I did, I wasn't ever really acting in faith. Um, I was taking charge. Like I would, I would have those, um, you know, morning sessions and it's almost like I was getting my marching orders and then I'd go march and do it. And when I, when I started TriLink and I felt like this is totally the right thing to do, um, I really felt like the Lord was saying to me, so Gloria, I am never going to tell you the plan. I'm going to let you take one step at a time, because if I tell you too much of the plan, then you're going to say, okay, I've got it from here. And you're just going to run ahead. (laughs) And I want you to be dependent on me every day. Um, And so that really, like when we were going through all those challenges and everything, that is what kept me like going was I would stop and, you know, say, okay, Lord, I really don't know what to do here. Uh, But you said that you have a plan. And so I'm waiting to see that plan. (laughs) Um, And always, you know, the, a solution would come and it wasn't easy. I mean, as you pointed out, Gary, there were so many challenges. Um, And the one thing for me that was not true of uh, our partner um, was that I really wanted to do the right thing by people, right? For people. Um, and while I couldn't fix everything that had been done, I thought, well, we can do things the right way from here on. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's what we even try to do here at TriLink. Um, so in order to do that, you have to be surrounded by people who are like that. And so we take, I mean, painstaking time to interview people um, to see if they're a cultural fit for us. And that our culture here is so important. It's something that everybody notices when they come in. They're like, wow, I mean, you have such amazing people. Everybody is just so nice and they really care. And and, and I always want to say to them, and if you really knew them, they're like people of character. They're people who um, you'd want to hang out with because they, they are really smart and really good people. Yeah. So um, tell a little bit about the story of your chief of staff and how Marixa. Yeah. No, I. <laughs> yes. So. Um, Marixa, well, so let me, let me just back up a minute. So, um, when I first started TriLink, um, I had, I had brought back my secretary from Deutsche Bank or my executive assistant from Deutsche Bank, cause she had left, um, and retired for a while. And so when I was going to do something again, she came to work for me and for a while it was just her and I, um, until things started coming together. And then um, when things started coming together, she and her husband decided they wanted to start their own business. And so that meant she had less and less and less time to work with me, which I supported her. And I was like, yes, absolutely. You should do that. Um, But I was in a situation where I was like, okay, now we've um, started to engage with Gary and that team and we bought a couple of other companies, a technology company and another company and um, to, to start building out this strategy. And so I thought, well, I really do need support. And 
um, so I was asking around and my, uh, the lady who does my hair, um, basically I was asking her and she said, well, do you remember Marixa? And I was like, yes, of course. So Marixa was the receptionist at the salon where I had been going for years and years and years. And um, I said, I thought she went to law school. And she said, oh, she did. Um, but she ended up leaving because it wasn't for her and she's moved back now and she's working for a transportation company, but she's really not happy. And so I was like, oh my gosh, she's an amazing person. I would love to you know, meet with her. So I literally called her that day. We met for lunch the next day and it was the weekend before Labor Day. Um, and over Labor Day, Gary and all of that group and the other companies I bought, we were going to Denver to do a strategic planning meeting um, with another firm we thought we might join venture with. And so this was on a Thursday. Um, and I said to her, she was like, when do you need somebody? And I was like, well, I need somebody like now because I have all this stuff I have to do to get ready for this offsite. And she said, well, you know what? I'm working tomorrow, but after work, I can help you. And I'm happy to help through the weekend and whatever. And I was like, okay, awesome. So she ended up coming like midday through Friday and worked the entire weekend, ended up going to Denver with me and starting to work for us then, like on the spot. And she's just, she is one of those people of character. She's an amazing, amazing woman. She has um, obviously done really well here. And she is now the head of investor relations for our firm. Uh, and I couldn't think of anybody better. Um, she's just so amazing. But she, yeah, she just kept growing and kept contributing. And um, yeah, I wish I had a thousand of her, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, the reason I wanted to highlight Marixa was because I think another one of your superpowers is you really understand culture. You hire, a, you know, to your core values, to the culture, not looking for the pedigrees or whatever. The pedigrees are interesting, but we've all seen that character matters and like coming with batteries, Ben McDonald's another of these guys, he comes with batteries. You know, you don't have to tell him, hey, go do this. And then he comes back. Hey, what should I do now? That's not it. He, he goes <laughs> and Marix is the same way. So totally. I just think for anybody listening, you've one thing that you've probably heard throughout the last year, almost two years now of us doing these podcasts is there's a common theme across all these leaders that seem to like be doing stuff right. And, and character matters, core values of that company matter and that's how you infect positively the culture. Yeah. And Gary, I'm sure you saw this too, but you're talking about Ben having batteries. Like the other common characteristic that I bet you would find is people's ability to focus on outcomes and get things done. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people focus on activity instead of outcomes. And if you don't focus on outcomes, you never get anything done. <laughs> You're busy. You're busy, <laughs> but you don't get things done. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
And, and I'm sure David um, saw all kinds of outcomes with all the labels on everything yes, in your yes, house. <laughs> yeah, I also did our, uh, all of our books in our bookcase, like the library. So they were organized, you know, by, uh, by category, by author, alphabetically. <laughs> <laughs> so Gloria, I want to, I want to ask a question of the comparison between um, kind of first career and second career, right? Um, obviously, it's very different working in a Deutsche Bank or a Bank of America versus starting and running this, this, uh, this firm where at the beginning it was you and then you and an assistant, right? So what were some of those most difficult pieces, especially early on when it was so different in comparison to what you had experienced in your past career? Yeah, that, uh, that's, that's a really great question. Um, in large organizations, you're very used to resources <laughs> and people who can do things. Um, when it's just you, right? Like you realize, oh, wow, it takes a long time to make an air, airline flight or book a you know, hotel or um, normally you just tell somebody to do that and it gets done or uh, there's lots of different things that you realize, oh my gosh, somebody does those things. Um, but when you have to do them all yourself, it, it just takes a long time. And you have to, I had to adjust from a time perspective, like, oh, how much could I realistically get done in a day? Because things will take longer than I was used to. Um, so that was, I would say, one of the biggest early challenges. I mean, I, I figured it out, but um and the other thing was, I, which I think benefited us, but I was used to process. I was used to being regulated. I was used to having lots of policies and procedures and a process for everything. And when I first, when we first started building the company and I was telling our team, um, okay, we've got to build our policies and procedures now for what we plan to do. They all thought I was nuts. And I would set these deadlines for them. <laughs> and I was like, Gloria, why, why do we have to have it done by Friday? Or whatever. I was like, you guys, look, because we do plan to have a fund and we do plan to be able to do all these things. And we will never have more time than we do now to think mm -hmm. this through properly, to try to have good policies and procedures. And we, when we need them, we want them to be in place. Um, and you know, I would say now people laugh about it. People that are still around, like our chief investment officer and I had operations, like they're like, oh, we used to think she was crazy because she would set us these deadlines for drafting policies and procedures when we had no fund. And basically, um, again, I think that I benefited from, you know, coming from a large organization. So um, being even now a still fairly small organization, we have a lot of policies. <laughs> procedures. Um, so that was, I mean, it was a good thing, but it was just different, right? Um, another really good thing that I was very deliberate about was I thought, okay, what did I not like about working in big organizations? Yeah. And the, I, that was easy for me. It was like, okay, I don't like politics. I don't like bureaucracy. I don't like the hierarchy because that causes bureaucracy. <laughs> I don't like silos. Um, and, you know, 
I only want to work with people I like because in a big organization, you don't have a choice. Um, <laughs> and so when I was creating, like designing our culture, I was like, okay, so we are going to always have a very flat organization. Um, we're not going to have hierarchy. We're not going to have all that bureaucracy because it really, um, I think, um, squashes everybody's, you know, creativity and their, uh, eventually their interest um, because everybody in the organization has good ideas about lots of different things. And so we should have everyone feel very comfortable, you know, raising their hand if they see something wrong or right, or they want to do different, like everybody should have a voice. Um, and we should truly get to use all of everybody when they come to work, we should get the best of whatever they have. Um, and so as we've gotten a little bigger, we have to do things to like deliberately fight that kind of bureaucracy and hierarchy. So um, for example, one of the rules we have is we, no one can um, do uh, like, I'm gonna say social things with only their team because I don't want silos. And so that means if somebody wants to take their team out for cocktails or whatever, they have to invite everybody. Like you can't just do it. Like the investment team can't just go out for drinks together. Um, you have to do it as a cross section. We do um, now through COVID, we were trying to come up with ways to keep people connected. And so we were doing these things, still doing them called Let's Do Lunch. And it was once a week and we would put people in groups like cross section of people in groups and um, they could order lunch on DoorDash or whatever, deliver it to their house. And then they were on Zoom with these four other people for an hour and they could, there's no agenda. It was just get to know each other and talk about whatever you want. Um, and our team has actually really liked that because it has kept them connected and but you can't have like two people from the same department in one of those lunches. Um, we do lots of family things. We do uh, lots of other team building activities and we always purposely cross um, departments so that we, you know, we can avoid silos as much as possible. Um, and then also I'll go sit, we have a bullpen where we have uh, pods of people I'll just go sit out there with them sometimes and work um, just so I can hear what's going on and they feel like they can talk to me. And so. Yeah, no, yeah, it's interesting. Really good. There, there seemed to be two conflicting comments as you were talking about that and, and you wrapped it up nicely of, okay, we're going to be as flat as we possibly can and not have hierarchy and bureaucracy, but we're also going to try and have all these processes and things in place right. where we going, where we're going to be which as you get bigger, typically that means you need some hierarchy and organization, things like that. So it's, it's interesting how you've been able to balance both of those and maintain what you want at, from a hierarchical uh, standpoint while not sacrificing the growth and the processes. Yeah. Um, and it's not easy. It comes with a lot of effort. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So I want to circle back on, on a piece and this is probably going to be more about like marketing and branding or at least messaging yeah. from about 10 or 15 minutes ago, you were talking on the, the SI, uh, ESG side 
of so many are focused on philanthropy or giving, like that's their message, right? Invest in this because we're supporting these types of companies. Yeah. But, but it's not generating the returns that people are looking for from their investments. So how, without getting into the making of the sausage, I guess, how are you able to provide those returns for investors? And then more importantly, how are you able to actually dispel that myth that ESG is just for the bleeding hearts? Yeah, it has been a challenge. I mean, I I will tell you, it's been a big challenge, but to generate market rate returns, this is going to sound really simple, but um, you first have to have a real investment idea that has the potential to generate market rate returns. Um, and, and it's got to be an investment. And then you have to manage that investment as you would normally manage an investment, regardless of any outcome. So we are a financial first investor for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but alongside of that, we actually integrate all of our environmental, social and governance screening and all of our impact tracking and reporting. Um, we, it's integrated right into our investment team. And so from the moment we get a tear sheet, it isn't just our credit analysts looking at the deal. It's also our ESG analysts looking at the deal. And they both have to be happy for it to move forward. Yep. And so it's, um, it's not an either or in our case. It's, they got to both happen. Um, and so from a, um, a process perspective, that's how we do it. Um, and we would not make an investment that has all this impact and it's a great ESG story if it didn't have the return. We, yeah. we would not do it. Nor would we make an investment if it had great financial returns but was doing bad things or weren't committed to impact. We wouldn't make it either. Um, from a marketing perspective, I will say it was the biggest challenge that I was not expecting. Um, I thought we would have some pushback, but um, what we discovered when we first went to market the fund was that people had that so ingrained in their head that anything social or ESG or impact had to be concessionary um, that we could not change that. It was their reality. And so what we ended up doing, and literally this was like on our very first rollout of TGIF, we've got a hundred ish um, financial advisors in a room doing a big rollout and it's from all these different firms and I'm so excited so I get up and I do the first pitch which is you know what is impact investing why should you care how is this going to help you you know improve your financial practice and I'm giving the whole pitch and everything and then Paul gets up after me and it's like and here is something you can invest in that does good but I could tell by the time Paul got up there, no one was paying attention. Like right. their eyes were rolling back in their head. And we, Paul and I both were like, oh, they didn't hear a thing he said because they were still trying to, yeah. So the next, next day when we did it again, we just flipped it. And Paul got up first and they were like, wow, this is an amazing investment. They're digging into that. And then when I got up to do the, you know, and I, I really sold it as a bonus. And I was like, you guys, you think that's good. Guess what? You also get this bonus because this investment also does good. Um, and by then they were already bought into the financial return. 
And so we didn't have to backpedal. Um, so sadly, in the very beginning, now we've been able to change that recently, but in the very beginning, um, while well, we were called Trilingual Global Impact Fund, so you couldn't get rid of the name, but um, we did have to pitch it as, you know, we're a, in, we're a uh, private credit fund for income generation. Um, and it's a low risk way to generate a high return, uh, a high uh, yield. And oh, by the way, you get this bonus. And it was sad that we had to do it that way, but it was the way to raise money. So um, now, like I said, things are starting to turn so we can market it more uh, on the ESG and impact side than we could in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that so, makes sense. But it's 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 interesting how that is starting to shift, but it's still very far behind, right? It's nowhere near the, I think, the understanding that people are going to have a few years from now. But, but you're also, in a way, pigeonholing yourself a little bit on purpose of when you were talking about the two different screenings, you, you even said, you're like, all right, if it makes sense from an investment standpoint, but not from an, the ESG screening, then we just pass. Yep. Well, right. So you're purposely passing on something that you're already saying is going to have positive returns. Right. So that shrinks the the access of, of different options that you have for, for your fund itself. Right. Um, is that, has that ever been a hang up or is it just, we're so bought in from a cultural standpoint that this is just part of our process? Yeah. It's part of our process. The other thing is everybody really truly believes um, that while that return on that one we pass on may look like it's going to be great. There is an inherent risk in that investment that lots of things could go wrong because they're not managing the environmental, social, and governance yep. issues. And so everyone knows that if you don't manage that risk, you could lose a lot of money and not, you know, realize that return. Yep. Real quick uh, comment, and this is to everybody that's an entrepreneur and knows the pain of launching something, um, something that you said, Glory, that I thought was really powerful. And the ones, the entrepreneurs that I've seen do really, really well were very focused on their message. They knew what their thing was, but then the market kept not giving them the buy signal <laughs> and they had to adjust. It didn't mean that they changed and were a chameleon, they were still resolute in who they were and what their mission was, but they were willing to bend and adjust the messaging so that it could be received. Really. And, and again, that's a really important thing. You can still be resolute in your mission, yeah. but you have to pay attention to the audience. Um, and, and so that statement, the question is, you know, launching a fund that's different, it's not an institutional fund, it's got all these SEC regulations, it's got all these barriers to entry, nobody's done it. And by the way, you were the top female executive Deutsche Bank, but your fund has no track record. How did you, like, I know that you were on the road and you had countless meetings with countless people that knew you that could vouch for your character and yet i'm sure you were i know you were still running into roadblocks how did you overcome those things 
pure determination. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep going. Um, and Whenever one thing didn't work, then we just did it ourselves. And in fact, when I said before, you know, we made mistakes. So some of the mistakes were, you know, getting involved with your former partner um, yeah. in the beginning. But moving past that, in, in the now version of Trilink, um, one of the mistakes we made was in, um, we had a third party distribution model and we hired a third party distributor. And... I don't necessarily think that um, hiring a third-party distributor was a bad thing or even necessarily that they were bad, but we didn't have the right um, uh, financial incentives in place for them and us to be aligned. Mm. And so we had no control over how they were marketing us or when they were marketing us. And so... Mm -hmm when in the very beginning we were out of registration and they had nobody to launch us because they were focused on another fund that had just gotten out of registration. And so we had to go do it ourselves. Um, and then that was the first year. And then basically they weren't, we really felt like they weren't managing it properly from bot from the top down. So we then got to know all their wholesalers and pushed it ourselves and we traveled, Paul and I traveled for three years all around the country. And um, we just would make ourselves available and say, hey, we wanna go see those financial advisors. We're gonna be in Hoboken, New Jersey or wherever, um, you know, set up meetings. And we would just, we just took control of it ourselves um, because you, you can't just roll over and go, well, it's their fault. They're not doing right. it right? You go, well, ultimately we're responsible for getting sales. So we have to find a way to make it happen. And that was what we did. We just kept trying different things until it worked. Another question, COVID related, since, you know, you've got investments in other countries, you know, developed countries or, you know, and mitigated risk, you know, areas, but nonetheless, how do you, how did you manage this when travel was completely shut down and still operate, still have checks and balances, you know, communication. How'd you guys navigate that? Yeah. So it is one of the uh, benefits. We have many benefits to, we have a really unique business model where we um, have investment partners on the ground in the countries where we invest and they act as our agents. They help originate deals for us. They help uh, due diligence them. They help us with structuring and underwriting. Ultimately, it's our credit team that makes the decision, um, but they literally are our boots on the ground. So we have almost 500 uh, agent employees all around the world. So when COVID shut down our travel, because we would travel there regularly, um, we had them on the ground to be able to go to our borrower companies and do whatever we needed to do to facilitate what, you know, what we would normally do ourselves. Um, and we did a lot by Zoom. We still do a lot by Zoom. Um, and in fact, we do annual due diligence meetings um, for all of our partners. They have to go through a re-due diligence and we would normally go there for a week and do that. Um, so we decided, well, how are we gonna replicate that um, on Zoom. And we 
found a way to do it. So we still brought in all of their team. Um, we brought in all of our team and we have three days of Zoom meetings. <laughs> wow. um, but going through all the same things and, um, you know, you use, we use Crawl a little bit more for uh, extra checks, reference checks and background checks and things that we monitor all of them all the time. Um, so you find a way. As we hopefully emerge from this, you know, who knows how perpetual this is going to be, but thought we were coming out and now, you know, stuff is locking down again or yep. whatever, who knows what, what lessons learned from this time or what, um, you know, where you've had to adapt and overcome, how do you see things moving forward, you know, in a hybrid kind of ma manner, you know, less travel than what you were doing before, but, you know, still some, or, you know, what are you, what are you thinking? I think for us, um, once things actually open up again, which, you know, they're not, I mean, we can't travel to a lot of these places still. Um, but once travel opens up, I think we'll go back to the same amount of on the ground travel because we think for what we do, um, the best thing we can do is build relationships with people, which you can only do really face-to-face. -face. I mean, it Zoom, you can go so far, but yeah. um, to build real trust and real uh, relationships, you need to be face-to-face. -face. So from an investment point of view, we'll, we'll probably get back to our old you know, way of travel. Um, from an investor point of view, um, you know, that we'll take the lead on investors. So a lot of institutional investors um, still want to do on-site due diligence. And, you know, they've accommodated with Zoom right now, but I think they're going to move back to on-site. Um, and then if we have another retail fund, it, it will still be hand-to-hand -hand combat, <laughs> go to all these places. And I mean, just because it's, um, it's a people business, we're not selling a commodity, right? We're, we're selling people and our ability to, um, for the, we want them to trust us in our ability to deliver for them. And so people need to meet you to do that. You know, you've had a tremendous amount of success at an early age. Um, you know, you, you are the personification of grit as far as I'm concerned. I've seen it, you know, it, Gloria Neeland could also be grit Neeland. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, you know, where, what's, what's the, you know, longer term, you know, are, are you going to sell? I'm sure that, you know, now that you've had success, you've had people that have wanted to buy you guys, et cetera. And, you know, you can discuss it, how you can be as close uh, lipped about it as you want, but I'd just be curious, you know, you know, where is there there? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really have any intention to ever sell. Um, I built the company to be able to work forever. I, I tried retirement, it just didn't work. So I don't have any interest because I go, well, then what would I do? Um, and so I, I want the company to run, you know, as long as it can. Um, plus, I have a lot of younger people um, I mean, they're not young, young, but they're younger than me, um, who are also bought in and owners and, you know, on the executive management team that would like to keep it running 
too. And so I go, well, even if they ultimately need to bring somebody else in um, and I do something different or, you know, work less or something, because if I'm not capable, then I shouldn't be doing it. But as long as I'm capable, I want to keep running it and growing it um, as much as we can. And we all, uh, everybody on our management team that has equity basically is on the same page that look, if we ever got a, we do get offers, um, but if we ever got some crazy wild offer that we couldn't refuse, might we consider selling? Sure. Um, but that's not our intent. We didn't build the company to sell it. Um, and our, you know, we have a few outside investors and they didn't invest for that reason either. So there's no pressure, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that this is a multi-episode thing where uh, I have so many more questions to ask. This has been a ton of fun. So before we, we sign off today, any, any final thoughts, anything else you want to, uh, to say before we wrap this up? No, just that I really appreciate the time with you guys and uh, it's been fun. Happy to do it again. Well, perfect. Well, we appreciate you coming on. This has been a ton of fun. Awesome. And Gloria, best place for somebody to learn more about Trilink Global, learn more about you, where would you direct them? Trilinkglobal.com, our website. Um, You can even email us through that you know, info at trilingglobal.com. Um, or if you just Google me, you'll get, you'll learn a lot about me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Gloria, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for making a positive difference in my life. That's for doggone well, sure. Thank you. Um, and, um, you know, y- you've been a beacon of, this is what leadership looks like. And I've, I've seen it firsthand and witnessed the good and the bad. So, Thank you so much. Um, tell Marixa hey for us too. I will. I definitely <laughs> All right, will. cool. Ben, thanks right. so much. I'm glad you got to meet thanks, uh, Gloria I know, right? firsthand too. Very nice. And for all the listeners out there, uh, you know, look her up and, um, you know, do what you can to embody the leadership uh, examples that she set that resonate with you. Um, each of us have a unique finger, fingerprint for a reason and by design, you all were uh, uniquely fashioned and you are anything but typical too. So thank you again, Ben. Thank you again, Gloria. Thank you, Gary.